We're going to be in the book of Malachi. Turn in your Bibles to Malachi, which the table of contents could guide you to, or you could go to the New Testament, find Matthew, and turn back a page or two. So it's the very end of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1. While you're turning there, I'll tell you of an occasion I had. A few years back, I performed a funeral at Arlington National Cemetery. Some of you may remember Eleanor Crake, and she was interned there with her husband. And I took the opportunity to bring my, at the time, my three oldest sons, uh, my three sons were old enough to, I thought, gain from the experience of Arlington. So they took the day off from school, and I brought them with me, and my intent was... Uh, after the funeral service, we'd spend the day in D.C., and I was gonna, we were going to do Arlington, and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, the World War II Memorial, the Vietnam Memorial, uh, just sort of a, a day of remembrance. That was the goal. It turned out it was super cold and rainy, kind of cold October rain. So when we arrived, we ended up getting there about an hour and a half early, and so we went to see the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and I mean, before the funeral even started, we were soaked to the bone and freezing. So I bought them whatever they wanted for lunch, and we went home after that, it's trying to salvage the day. But the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Arlington was memorable. And it was interesting to see when we arrived at the tomb of the unknown soldier in the midst of this cold, dreary rain that the guard was not shut away in his uh, guardhouse. He was walking. He was guarding the tomb. And you know, for all that can be said, we, we all know that there's problems with life and problems with our country and problems with America, but there's a few places and a few times where you can go where you see purity expressed, the purity of an idea expressed. And this is one of them. This is one of these places where there is constant uh, vigil in memory of fallen soldiers. And it's, it was, it, in all weather, it's a thing of beauty. But to see that in that weather, I suppose... I suppose the soldier was like anybody who else was there. We felt the rain, we were cold, we were miserable, we were frustrated. But you couldn't tell looking on his face. He stood straight as though there was no such thing as rain. And he walked as though there was no such thing as cold. And he did that because he knew what he was representing and what he was guarding. He was guarding an idea that was way bigger than that day or that weather. And there is something in me that says everybody should see the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier on a cold, rainy day for that reason alone. Because you realize how important the idea is. There are just some ideas in life that are so noble and so high and so special that to be connected to that idea, to have anything to do with that idea, makes you stand up straight and makes you careful of how you act. And that was one of them. And today in Malachi is another. A more, I might say, an even more important idea. An even more careful notion that requires 
constant mindfulness as to what a person associated with it is doing. The book of Malachi was written towards uh, one of the darkest periods of Hebrew history. The line of kings had failed. The grandeur of Israel was a bygone phrase and they had been conquered, destroyed, taken into exile, enslaved. These, all of these things had happened. By the time Malachi is writing, they've been allowed, given permission to return to their land. Okay? They did not fight for their freedom. They were given provisional permission to go back to their land with the tax burden of the empire and to try to do the best with what they could there. And it was just, it's a dark period. It's a sad period of Jewish history where everything is hard. Rebuilding the temple is hard. Doing sacrifices are hard. There's, there's opponents and there's adversaries to everything they're trying to do. And in the midst of all of that is all the sort of temptations of all the peoples around them that are constantly bombarding them as a people and diluting who they are as God's people in the midst of all of their trials. And it's in this time where I think the seed is planted in the souls of the people that God does not love them. How can Yahweh, the God of Israel, love them for all of this to be taking place? And Malachi speaks out of that. Okay, Malachi is a prophetic word from God and he's speaking to this challenge that's hiding in the hearts of the people, that God does not love them. And he's going to be addressing their behavior in light of it. Last week, we looked at the first six verses of Malachi, where there was this complaint, this sort of inner complaint. God says to them, I do love you. And they say, how is it that you love us? Uh, Presumably, kind of look at the world around me. How can you possibly love me if my life looks like this? To which God said, I chose you. Look at what I've done for you. Well, this week, the Lord has an accusation towards the people. And I'll pick up in verse 6. This is chapter 1, verse 6 of Malachi. God says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Okay, I'll stop there. There's two assumptions that are just right up front that God just plows through, doesn't even ask the question. The first is the assumption that a son should honor his father and that a servant should honor his master. Those were assumed tenants of of the people of the time. This is an honor-shame culture that the Bible is being written out of. So the notion of how to treat one another is very, very high. So just as a son honors his father and just as a servant honors his master, the, the second assumption comes into play now, which is that to Israel, God is both father and master. God is Israel's father and God is Israel's master. Now, he doesn't argue these points he assumes they know it. These are, these are so obvious to the people of Israel, these ideas that he can just say them. But out of that comes, if I'm your father, where's my honor? And if I'm your master, where's the fear I'm due? Where's the respect I'm due? 
The word master there is a word that we will sometimes use for God. Sometimes when you read the word Lord in your Bible, the Hebrew word is a word called Adonai, which means Lord or master. So he's actually even, there's a play here on his own name as he's talking. If I'm your Lord or master, where's the fear? Now, the word fear here is not to be seen as like fright, like you're going to go into a Halloween haunted house. That's not the kind of fear. The word fear, the best way to understand this word is to start at respect and ride out on the road of respect towards the word fear. So, you know, you fear and then you get to reverence and then you get to awe and then you get to a notion that this mighty God holds my entire future in his hand. That's, that's what is meant here in the Hebrew is that. Why do you not treat me? as though I give you the very air you breathe. Why not? And he says this to the priests. Not to the people, but to the priests. The very people who are commanded to stand, you might say, vigil over the altar of God. He says, it's you that I have a problem with right now because you've despised my name. The priests ask, when did we despise you? How is it possible that we've despised your name? Now, before we go into the case of God, I just want to give you a sense of the role of a priest during the time of Israel. Okay, the priest, it's easy for us to think that the priests were involved in sacrifice, and they certainly were. The priests did sacrifice, but what you could really think of them as is mediators between God and man. The people of God, if they wanted to approach God, would approach God through the priests. The priests would stand between the people and God, and so if the people would bring an offering, the priests would offer it to God on their behalf. They were mediators. That's an, kind of an important idea. They would oversee, they would mediate, they would sacrifice, they would do these things to bring the people to God and in doing so, bring the people close to God. And that was more than the shedding of blood. It happened in the midst of the shedding of blood of an offering, but there was a lot more that happened. There was a judicial nature to the role of the priests because in Israel, the law was religious. There was not a courthouse, there was a temple. So the Levites the priestly tribe, were very much involved in understanding what's right, what's just, and what's true. So someone might bring an, an offering to the Lord for something, and the, and, the, and the priests would weigh that out and say, is this appropriate in light of what you've, what's right here? What's right to do here? There's an element of hope in the work of the priests. If you did something that you felt bad about, and you were struck with guilt, and you brought some, an offering to the temple, and you said to the priests, I just need a clean conscience before the Lord, and I want to make an offering before the Lord. Well, the priests would help you in that. They'd say, well, make this sort of offering to the Lord, which was never, it was never an expensive effort. It was just a careful effort. And make this offering before the Lord. And when you were done, they would pronounce over you, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Go home in peace. There was an element of instruction that was with the priests. When people would bring offerings to the priests, there were very often retellings of stories, teachings of the law, 
teachings of the stories of God so that the, the people would remember why are they doing the things they're doing. And there was intercession. If there was something that was on your heart and you wanted to go to the Lord about it, the priests would go to the Lord on your behalf about that thing because they were your mediators. The second chapter of Malachi, the, uh, verses four through seven, actually describes the priesthood, I think, as well as it's ever said anywhere in the Bible. It's said so well here. Let's just look at it for a second. Now, he's going to talk to the priests, the priesthood, as though they're a person, Levi, okay? He's per- personifying them. He's speaking to them as if they were a person. But I, I think you'll see the meaning here. In verse 4, he says, So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave it to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. Isn't that great? Such a a wonderful expression of all of what the priest was doing. God gave them a covenant of life and peace, and they returned to the Lord fear and homage. Really important. And in that, in them enjoying the life and peace that God gave and sharing with the people around them, the other people around them would give fear to the Lord. So that if you came, if you came to the Lord with something, some wrong thinking or some injustice or something like that, the priest would call it out. That's not how it should be. Don't you know what the Lord has said? Don't you know what God has done for us? Don't you know you too were once a slave? Don't you know you too were once a recipient of great injustice? But how much good they would preach the word of God to the person. They would preach truth to the person and and call that person to a covenant of life and peace. That's what they were for. But it's not how they are anymore. Look at verses 8 through 10. Oh, actually, let's just look at verse 7. Let's just read 7 together. So in verse 6, they say, How have we despised your name? How have we done this? And this is what, this is what the Lord says. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, excuse me, I'll just read, keep reading through 10. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there was one among you who would shut the doors 
that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. The priests are accepting invalid sacrifices. Things that ought not to be accepted, they're accepting. The people are supposed to bring a male lamb without blemish, not lame, perfectly healthy. But what are they bringing? They're bringing the worst of the flock. They're bringing the things that they wouldn't eat or that they wouldn't share. They're bringing the things that would offend their own neighbors if they had their neighbors over. They're bringing the things that would offend their boss if they had their boss over. They're bringing the leftover offerings to the temple to get right with God, and the priests are accepting it. That's why God's calling them out. Is If you have a priest problem, it's not long before you end up with a people problem. These are just some texts from... Uh, the law in the Old Testament that sort of bring to light the role of the priests. This one here is from Leviticus, okay? I'm not cherry-picking. I just figure you don't want to read the whole book of Leviticus today. So there's plenty of these. This is Leviticus 27. The Lord says, and if, and if it is any unclean animal that may not be offered as an offering to the Lord, then he shall stand the animal before the priest, and the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall be. When a man dedicates his house as a holy gift to the Lord, the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall be. You see that idea, that, that, that notion that the priest is standing in the place of propagating the idea of what's good to the people. And when the priest says that's a good offering, the person walks away with a notion of what's good. This is another one from Deuteronomy. This is about an offering. But if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. It's pretty clear. This is from Ezekiel, a prophet, another prophet. Okay, this, you'll hear the tenor of, of, of the argument here is very reflective. Speaking of Israel, he says, Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. You hear it? Let's just get beyond the rules for a second. I don't want you to think technically about is this a technical argument about the nature of the lamb? It's not. It's a spiritual argument about what God's trying to do. God it cares about the offering brought because one day Jesus is going to stand in the place of that offering. And God cares about how the priest does his job because one day Jesus is going to stand in the place of the priest. When John the Baptist sees Jesus Christ from across the water, what does he say? He points at him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. Jesus is seen, right, for years, hundreds of years, Israel had been taught that your sins separate you from God. And it's a, in order to gain peace with God, blood has to be shed. There's your sins, God is so holy that our sin 
functionally, every sin is a death penalty. Every sin separates us from God. But because of God's mercy, he said, here, bring a lamb. Bring a good lamb without blemish. Not lame, not blind, a good lamb. And he will stand as a poor substitute for you. So that you don't die, we'll make the practice of shedding the blood of a lamb. Shedding the blood of hundreds of years, shedding the blood of the lamb, shedding the hundreds and hundreds of years of sacrifice. Every day in Israel, if you were a young Israeli child, you'd wake up and see smoke coming up from the temple because they'd sacrifice in the morning at sunrise. And then they'd keep a fire lit all day long in the temple so that incense would be rising. And then before sunset, they'd sacrifice again so that there was constantly the image of the, the priesthood is constantly mediating to the Lord all the time on their behalf. God forgive us. God forgive us. God forgive us. God forgive us. And one day Jesus is going to stand in all of that. And yet the priests, whatever you bring is fine. You know, just throw anything up on this table that has a pulse and we'll take it. Can you imagine the consequences of that? The holy consequences in the mind of the people as... To see a, a lazy priesthood. Imagine going to Arlington and just seeing a guy with his hands in his pockets. Welcome to Arlington. Here's a brochure. It's a little rainy. I'll be in the guardhouse. We're on a smoke break. How do you fight for a noble idea if that's how you guard the noble idea? Can you imagine the consequences of this ritual, religious malpractice, right? Someone would walk away thinking, I guess my sin's not really that big of a deal. I mean, <laughs> I brought the worst animal. I had to resuscitate this animal three times on the way to the temple. And it worked. Or I guess God's love is not a big deal. Or I guess God is not a big deal. Do you see, see how a priest problem becomes a people problem? Or worst of all, worst of all, I guess the power for forgiveness is simply in this ritual practice and not in the, my heart of worship. I guess all I really need to do is get something on that table, get the thumbs up from the priest, and then I'm out of here. That sort of extracting the heart of worship from the nature of worship God would say, I would rather one of you would have the guts to close the door of the temple and stop altogether because that malpractice is worse than no practice. Just don't worship if you're going to worship like that. Whatever you do, do not let people think that I don't care about the heart of worship, that I don't care about the heart of the sinner. A good priest, if someone had brought in some lame, sick creature, a good priest would have said, what is this? Come on, what is this? And if they'd have said they're poor, just in case you have a mind of justice, they said, this is the best I have. He would have said, according to the law of Moses, well, you don't even need to bring this. You know, you could have just brought me a little bit of grain. God always, at every, every financial bracket, the Lord made it, made it perfectly fine that someone could bring the best of what they had. So a priest even there would have said, well, take this back, take this back and bring for me a pigeon. Just bring me a pigeon. But they would have said, listen, I can't just put anything on the table. God is great. Let me tell you what he did again. 
Like build, build the idea back up. I think there's a generation in American Christianity that has come through this sort of box-checking Christianity of, I guess it's just about, I come, I do this, and then I leave, you know? Zip in, check the box. Hey, I'm door-to-door in like an hour, uh, and I'm good till next year, right? I feel like there's a generation of Americans that's grown up looking at that and going, is that what religion? And I will say when they see it, some people go, well, why would I want that? Who would want that? They have their knee-jerk response is to reject it because they're bored by it, because they think they're not moved in their heart towards it. And I would say, if that's your response, you have exactly the same perspective as God on this subject. This is exactly his response. I despise that kind of worship, he says. So, let me ask, what is the nature of your worship? What do you bring the Lord? How do you approach God? I mean, God cuts straight to the heart. He says, would you have done this to your governor? (laughs) He knows just where to go, right? Think of all the things you surround your life with, the power structure around you that you regularly bow to that gets your best and your first and your most and your second effort. He goes, am I not your God? What's What's your nature of worship with the Lord? Does he get... Does he get your best or does he get your second best? Or does he get your leftovers or your spare change? Spare time? Now remember, all of this spawned from the, the, the idea that they, go, they are not sure he loves them. So I just want to turn back to that. You said, I'd say, well, he doesn't get that much of my time because he's not that big a part of my life. I would say, this returns right to the beginning of the book. God loves you and has done a wonderful thing for you. It's a worthy idea. We'll skip verse 11, and we'll come back to it. I want us to look at 12 and 13 for a second. It's a second sort of second perspective on their sin, or the consequences of their sin. <clears throat> he says, but you profane it, speaking of his name, you profane God's name when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. And its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord. Do you hear hear the mood of the priests in this picture? It's bad enough that the priests are accepting mediocrity as a form of worship. It's bad enough that whatever someone brings, regardless of the heart of worship, the priests are just checking the box and send them on their way. But worse than that is when the people bring what they are, the priests look like their job is a pain in the neck. What a nuisance this job is. I'm stuck here all day long, walking back and forth over this soldier whose name I don't even know. This is, you feel it? They are in an honored place where God, Jesus Christ himself 
will one day stand and fill the whole image up. All of what you've done for hundreds of years has been waiting as a placeholder until Jesus Christ himself can fully live into it. And they're in that place saying with their expressions and their face and their words, God is tedious. And this is a nuisance. Saying the right ritual words minus the belief is so harmful. God said to him, I gave you a covenant of life and peace and I gave them to you, he says in Macklin 2. And you, once you gave me fear and respect, once you did that, and when that happened, the idea of God stood tall. It was noble. No matter how many things were going wrong, no matter how bad things in the world might have been, if the people could have come to the temple, they could have seen the grandeur of God. But not anymore. So on both these thoughts, this week has been pretty thoughtful for me. I'm not a priest, but we are kingdom of priests, I should say. Just let that sit in for a second. How you worship God reflects to the world, okay? But I understand, you know, as a pastor, there's a lot of parallels, and so I've been stuck, I think rightfully so, sort of going, how is this working out for me? It doesn't help. This is my 10th, uh, 10 years this Sunday, it's 10 years today is, is my role as pastor here. So I was like double thoughtful. I was sort of hoping the Lord would write me a thank you letter, and he sent me Malachi. Uh, which is better. But it's a sort of, you can imagine how in a week like this, in a text like this, uh, a normal person would, would reflect. And I've asked questions. I've asked questions like these. How have I looked for life and peace elsewhere and in doing so compromised God's work? But is his covenant of life and peace not enough for me? Why have I gone and looked elsewhere? Or in wanting to be accepted by people, have I not confronted things that I should have in the fellowship? Or, you know, in the desire for people not to leave, have I smiled at their spiritual mediocrity and said, yeah, that's just fine. And I'm a critical, self-critical person, so you know I'll do that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then on Friday a friend will kind of pat me on the back and say, "Like, you're okay, Charlie Brown." And then I'll I'll return and re-ask the question, sort of with the stature of Christ in me, and, and see places where I have done it right and I have done it well. So it it, it all is good. But what I want I want to invite you to do that with me, since we're a kingdom of priests. I want to invite you into these questions because they're not harmful questions; they're absolutely appropriate questions. How have you? How have you held up the covenant of life and peace that God and only God can offer and forsaken it for nothing else? How has your worship of God been leftovers or last, last crumbs or afterthoughts or free time or has it been your best? I mean, think of it both ways. I'm not, trying, I'm not assuming the worst. I'm, I'm offering you the question. 
What about how you serve the Lord when you do the work of the kingdom? Is it drudgery or is it a privilege? Is it life and peace or is it a pain in the neck? This may all go back, by the way, to whether you think or don't think that God loves you. And he does. Okay, I want to offer you one last thought as we close. There's been a thought that's been weaving, like kind of in and out of this text. And in part, I've avoided it until now, uh, but it's been around. And it starts, actually started at the end of last week. Last week, there was this, you know, God, do you really love us? Of course I love you. Look at you versus look at your, your, your brother country, Edom. It's not going to go well for them, and yet I've, I cared for you. And at the very end of that, in the fifth verse, the Lord says something like this. This is chapter 1, verse 5. He says, Your eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. I found that to be a very interesting statement in, in, in that last text. Great is the Lord. There's people who think, God doesn't love me here. <laughs> and he ends that text with, And you one day say, Well, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Wow, he sure is great there. Well, and then we end up into the text of this week, and he's talking about polluted offerings and the defilement and defamation of his name. And then we get to verse 11. So 8, 6 through 10 is sort of this problem. And then we get to verse 11, and this is what verse 11 says. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered in my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So, Verse 11 takes the thought and it sort of bookends it. My name will be great among the nations. And he puts in the midst of it this really ironic statement that the nations and the peoples beyond Israel will offer better offerings and sacrifices than they're offering right now. The unclean people, the defiled people will offer pure sacrifices, he says. That's what he insinuates or implies. And then he closes it out with my name will be great among the nations. And then we get to the very end of this teaching, which is verse 14. And he says, and it's the end of this verse, but I'll read the whole thing. Cursed be the cheat who makes a male of his, in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So we might say in this whole argument, right before it was, my name will be great among the nations. Then we got into it, and in the middle of it, was a couplet. My name will be great among the nations. My name will be great among the nations. And at the end of it is, his name is great among the nations. Any question as to what might be in the mind of the Lord in this teaching? Now, when I read this, my first reading of it had a conditional nature to it, like what he's saying to me is something like this. I'm trying to make my name great among the nations, but the way that you guys sacrifice makes that impossible. I I read it conditionally, but it's not conditionally. Someone said to me, why do you see that? Read the text again. And when I read it, I was wrong. It's not a conditional statement. God's not saying, I'm trying to make my name great among the nations, and I need you to make it great so that it's great among the nations. He's not saying that. He's saying to a people, it doesn't matter what you do, my name is going to be made great among the nations. You may not be able to worship me in spirit and truth, but that doesn't affect who I am, and my name will be great among the nations. Period. Dot. In the midst of this whole argument, you could close the doors to your temple and my name would be great among the nations. In fact, I wish you would close the doors to my temple. It would make my work of making my name great all the easier. That's what he's saying. 
this is the end of the Old Testament. So Malachi is called the seal of the prophets. It closes the prophetic word out. We should note the Old Testament ends in the darkest, such a dark period of Jewish history where there's just no hope, there's nothing going on, right? In, in all of that, a song rose. No. <laughs> but it's a dark period of Hebrew history that's taking place. And it, I mean, if you were to read the Old Testament and you didn't have the New Testament waiting, and you got to the end and you're sitting in 400 BC wondering, well, what now? It feels heavy. I'm finishing the book. There's got to be a sequel, you would say. No story can end this darkly. And in the midst of this dark story, the Lord says, no matter how dark you are, my name will be made great among the nations. Into the Old Testament. Now, depending on the font size in your Bible, you may be one page away from the pronouncement of Jesus Christ. So what feels far to them is just right around the page for you. In fact, you're, he said, from the east to the west, from the rising into the sun to the setting of the sun, offerings will be made with a pure heart, and my name will be made among the great among the nations. And you're two pages away from Matthew 2, where wise men, kings from the east, from the far east, come over great distances. They follow a star. They don't arrive to talk to the king of the Jews, King Herod. They don't arrive to go to the temple. They walk right past the temple. They walk right down the street to a small town outside of Jerusalem, where when they come to Jesus, they get on their knees and they worship. And they offer noble sacrifice offerings, gold, frankincense, myrrh, things fit for a king. God's going to do this. God will make his name great among the nations and his name is Jesus Christ. Anybody here by the chance know the name of the Persian God? The Assyrian God? The Babylonian God? Did you pass any temples of Olympus on the way in here? Artemis? Any shrine of Aphrodite when you're getting here? Did you see the sign for Baal worship? It takes place on Saturday down the street, or did you not? You realize, you realize, at the darkest point in Jewish history, where even the priests had given up on worshiping God, they were bored of God, the people were bored of God, nobody was talking. Israel was a tiny little asterisk of a province to the Persian Empire. You don't know anything about their gods, but you know a lot about this one. Because he will make his name great among the nations. He's done it. I want to close with a question. When you come to the Lord, what are you bringing him? Because you're a kingdom of priests. What are we bringing to the Lord? How does your life hold him up? He's given you a covenant of life and peace. Have you given him fear and honor? Because his name will be made great among the nations. Whether these doors are shut or not, Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that despite human frailty and error and sin, you've
uh, you've done what you said you would do. We thank you that no one person's failing can snuff out the work of God, Lord, that it remains a great idea. And it's our prayer, Lord. It's our prayer that we, for those of us who are in the faith, that we would give you our first, the fat portions of our life, Lord, the the parts of our life that are admirable would belong to you. And in doing so, Lord, we would we would hold you high. And Lord, I pray that even for people here who aren't ready to call Jesus Lord or don't even know what to do with all this, they would at the very least see a fellowship that is worshiping in spirit and in truth, Lord, Lord, and not just checking a box and heading home. We pray you bless our worship, Lord, so that it's acceptable in your sight, O God. In Jesus' name, amen.